0: The prospect of becoming the new me, a person everyone would like and admire, was exciting. I was full of eager anticipation, like a child before a birthday party, my own birthday party. I was about to be born again, strong, courageous, heroic, self-sacrificing, obliging, witty, in general, the most lovable person in the world. I felt like a caterpillar awaiting its miraculous transmutation into a butterfly. In those early days of the trip, I just smiled and followed art around, i was happy for the first time since my father had died two years earlier when i had first joined art and the others at stony rapids they had been holed up on four wooden bunks in a small shack built for the pilot and crew of the plane that flew supplies in from the south earlier that day the dc-3 had bounced down the dirt runway and nearly crashed into the trees at the far end before it turned and taxied back to where a small group of people was waiting As the door swung open, the cargo was passed down to ready hands. I jumped out and landed in the dirt. There was a strange silence in the air, and the light of the sun was diffused to a pink haze by the smoke from a forest fire burning nearby. I heard the clicking of dragonflies' jaws chomping on hapless insects. I felt as if I had jumped into a dream. Then I saw Ard walking toward me, accompanied by three other men. He smiled and introduced Bruce Lefaver and Joe Lanuette, my fellow bowmen, and Peter Frank, the third stern. There was tension in the air, a thick blend of the excitement of embarking on an adventure together, the foreboding of possible danger, and the nervousness of being already three weeks late leaving civilization. There was the roar of engines as the plane took off again, and then the five of us walked back to the pilot's shack where I met the sixth member of the expedition. Frederick Skip Pessel, the second in command, was busy grooming his full golden beard in front of a broken scrap of mirror. Ruggedly handsome, he reminded me of the model for a player's cigarette ad. He greeted me in a friendly manner, but there was a coolness about him. He kept his distance. That evening, lanky Bruce Lefavre cooked dinner while Art studied a field guide to birds. Bruce liked to cook and had volunteered for the job on a permanent basis, but Art declined his offer. He who controls the food controls the men, Art remarked in a cynical tone that made the left side of his mouth curl upward in a smile, while the right side held firm. We all laughed appreciatively, as we had laughed at his other bits of cynicism during those early days of the trip. I was glad that Art was in control of the food. I trusted his judgment more than Bruce's, more even than my own. Art seemed so wise. When I had received Art's letter the previous February, I had been in the U.S. Army. He wanted to know if I would join him, Skip Hessel and young Peter Frank on an expedition across the barren grounds of subarctic Canada, which previously had been crossed by only two other expeditions, the first led by Samuel Hearn in 1772 in the company of Chippewyans and the second by the Terrell brothers in 1893, accompanied by Iroquois. Ours was the first expedition to attempt the crossing without the guidance of native wisdom. I had not known Art before the expedition, but he had lived in Norwich, Vermont, at the end of the same dirt road in which Louis Teague, a painter, lived. Louis had once been married to my cousin, but was divorced and remarried to a beautiful woman named Virginia, with whom I was in love. It was Louis who had given Art my name as an ideal candidate for a long-distance canoe trip into the frozen north.